Well, Habakkuk, we want to look at the first four verses, kind of an introduction to the book tonight and, and get started uh, in the first uh, part of the book here. And uh, <clears throat> the author is Habakkuk, uh, Habakkuk, I think that's how you're supposed to pronounce it, but however you pronounce it, it's good with me. Uh, Habakkuk, uh, he was a prophet from and to the southern kingdom, that is the, the kingdom of Judah, and his name means uh, to embrace or embracer. Or uh, some say, no, maybe preferably the idea of wrestler. Uh, embracer, wrestler, what's the difference? Uh, you know, kind of see where they get that, that idea. Commentators point out that he probably lived up to his name on both fronts. Uh, he wrestled with the whys of things, and yet he clung to God in faith. Embraced God, clung to God in faith, even though he didn't understand everything that was going on. Well, Habakkuk was a contemporary of Jeremiah, lived during the reigns of three kings, uh, Josiah, Jehoaz, and Jehoiakim. And the footnote at the end of the book in Habakkuk 3.19 suggests that he was a Levite and a musician. Uh, His literary style was that of a poet. And the genre resembles that of the Old Testament wisdom literature. Uh, When was it written? We don't know exactly, but we do believe it was before the uh, time of the Babylonian captivity. And there were three sieges related to the Babylonian captivity. uh, 605, 597, and 586. Uh, We believe it was written sometime prior, as I say, to the fall of the southern kingdom. Probably between uh, 625 and 605 B.C. As someone has put it, Habakkuk ministered during the death throes of the nation of Judah. Things were definitely looking very bleak. Lots of application here. Uh, The times were bleak, characterized by outstanding wickedness. Uh, Let me put a little... uh, Well, here it is, the outline. The theme and the outline. Uh, The theme is the just shall live by faith. And then uh, that's the key, key verse, the key theme, the just shall live by faith, found in chapter 2. But the outline breaks down like this. Habakkuk's first question there, uh, 1, 2 through 4. And then God's first answer, 1, 5 through 11. Habakkuk's second question, chapter 1, verse 12 through 2, 1. God's second answer, 2, 2 through 20. And then... Uh, the final chapter, 3, 9, 3, 1 through 19, Habakkuk's vision and prayer. Well, before we get into the text, a little bit of more background here. The northern kingdom was taken into captivity, 722, by the Assyrians. It's now late in the 7th century, as I say, uh, sometime just before uh, 605 B.C. And the southern kingdom has reached a climax in terms of moral and spiritual corruption. I mean, it's really not good. And in this context, we find the prophet Habakkuk asking some serious questions. First, he asks why God doesn't do something about the evils that are going on amongst his own people in Judah. God seemed to be so indifferent, and the prophet couldn't understand why. So the prophet raised a question about what appeared to be a discrepancy between the facts of history, what he's living in, the context he's living in, And uh, divine revelation. You understand he knew the Bible. And uh, after all, didn't God say that if his people were disobedient, he would bring judgment on them? The curses that we find in Deuteronomy, uh, he he would bring upon them for flagrant disobedience. And yet here they were, 
year after year, carrying on in evil, corrupt ways, exceedingly wicked ways, and God is doing nothing. Habakkuk couldn't understand it. I mean, how long is God going to put up with this? Well, to this, God responded that he was about to send the Chaldeans, that is the Babylonians, to judge the people, his people. And that really blew. If he had problems before, he now really had problems. That blew his mind because, you see, the Babylonians were even more wicked than his people. And he's saying, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, You know, we'd think you'd go, you know, hard on them since they're more wicked. He wonders how a just God could work this way. And he wrestles with how God could use a heathen nation who are even more wicked than his own people to punish them. Well, God responds with the key verse, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith. It's interesting. uh, He tells him what's going to happen, but he doesn't give him all the ins and outs and all the whys. He just, the just shall live by faith. And the prophet responds with faith. As we see in chapter 3. Habakkuk 2.4 says. The just shall live by his faith. This is the key verse in the book. And it is one of the most quoted Old Testament verses in the New Testament. Being found in three key doctrinal books. Being found in Romans 1.17. Galatians 3.11. And Hebrews 10.38. You see the reality of justification by faith. Is also found in the Old Testament. It's not just a New Testament doctrine. Just shall live by faith is really sourced out of the Old Testament as quoted in the New Testament. There is a consistency throughout the Bible showing that salvation is by faith. It's always been on the basis of faith. Even under the time of law, uh, where the Mosaic law was the governing code for the people of God, uh, the way they demonstrated their faith was in seeking to obey it. But they were never saved by the law. Justification has always been by faith. The emphasis, by the way, on the just shall live by faith is not merely that you will have life by faith. That's true, and that's uh, the emphasis in the New Testament. Uh, The just shall uh, shall have life by faith. But it's deeper than that in that you will live by faith. It emphasizes a changed life, a life characterized by faith. It's not a stagnant concept, but rather a life-oriented concept. Uh, It's how we live by faith. This is how you live. The just shall live by faith as a pattern of life. It's not like, well, I made made a faith decision back there, but now, you know, it it hasn't affected me since. No, no. Uh, You live by faith. Faith, When you come to faith, you continue to have faith. You continue to hold the faith. One of the, the doctrines that's developed in the New Testament is faith, if it's saving faith, is abiding It's a continuing reality in your life. Uh, Finally here, Habakkuk presents a dialogue between the perplexed prophet and his holy God. Habakkuk, in the context of a a period of great wickedness and uncertainty, is asking that age-old question of, why? Why? Why is God permitting the evil that is happening? Why doesn't he do something about it? Why does he work the way that he does? Uh, the, the book really begins with uh, a question mark of why and ends with an exclamation point of joy with the call to faith in the middle. The book shows that at many points human logic will fail us and we cannot fully comprehend the whys of what is happening. 
But the just shall live by faith. Anyway, this is the response of the just. We believe in God. We believe he's a good God. We believe the ultimate outcome of the story is always good. As all things work together for good uh, for those that love the Lord. Well, let's get started. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. The burden. Uh, maybe your translation has oracle. You could, you could, it could go either way. But uh, the word burden here comes from a word meaning to lift up. Uh, and therefore denotes a load or, or something heavy or weighty. And uh, if you're facing something really heavy, this is a good book to study. How should you respond Well, this word was used when the message was ominous. We find uh, uh, this idea of a burden being given to the the various prophets in the Old Testament. It was a message that was threatening or was ominous. It's a sobering message of great gravity. However, as I say, sometimes the word doesn't seem to be used with that exact nuance. Sometimes it simply is communicating the idea of an oracle, uh, meaning a prophetic utterance. For example, in Proverbs 30 and 31. Note here, uh, the verse says here, the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. He saw this burden. He didn't just hear about it, he saw it. Uh, This means he saw a vision, evidently. He saw a vision. The contents of the message here, he saw in a vision. And sometimes the prophets were called seers. Seers. S-E-E-R-S. Because God gave them a prophetic vision of the future. And they saw it in some form, and then they communicated it. Well, there are two uh, interactions here, as I say, between Habakkuk and God in the book. The one is found in chapter 1, 2 through 11. And uh, first we have the complaint of Habakkuk that we're looking at tonight in the form of really a lament. uh, Sort of in the form of the lament psalms. And then in... uh, Uh, As we go along here, as we get into it, we see that Habakkuk raises really two grievances. He asks how long, and he asks why. And then we have the response of God in 1, 5 through 11. Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and you will not hear? Even cry out to you, violence, and you will not save. Habakkuk here uses the name Yahweh. Yahweh, how long shall I cry? Uh, This is God's sacred name. Uh, The the Jews consider the name Yahweh to be his most sacred name. It's uh, the name that's identified with his covenant relationship with his people Israel. And it emphasizes his unchanging covenant faithfulness. Really, Yahweh is a strong emphasis related to the idea of to be or I am. He's the unchanging God, and he's the unchanging God in relationship to his character uh, faithfulness, in relationship to his covenant commitment to his people Israel. He's always going to be there. He's not going to change. You can't say, well, God changed his mind. Now he's done with Israel. No, he's not. Uh, That's one of the big reasons why I'm really a stickler for, no, those promises that God made, those covenant promises that God made Israel, they're not going anywhere. And you try to put that aside, I'm going to have a little problem with that. So I say, well, that's not essential doctrine. Well, it's pretty essential, I think. Uh, you're talking about the very character of God. Well, here, that's how Habakkuk addresses him. Yahweh, Yahweh, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. He's got a problem. He's 
He's got a problem. He can't understand why this unchanging covenant God lets wickedness continue and he's doing nothing about it. Now, he assumes at some point, it would seem, that God will do something about it, but he wonders how long? How long? You ever wonder that? How long? How long is God going to put up with the wickedness? We, we see this world charting a certain course. How, how far is he going to go with this? That's a good question. How far did he go with Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, just so far. <laughs> and then fire came down out of heaven and destroyed them. Uh, but, you know, how do you measure that? Well, we know it was exceedingly wicked. Um, we know there weren't very many people in the city that were saved. How long? He's wondering, how long? It seems like this is way out of control, like it's way out of line, and God is just letting it go on forever without bringing it in check. That's, that's really interesting. It's interesting to think about God in this light. You know, we know God's a holy God, but he's also a very merciful God. He's also a very patient God. And we know from the New Testament in 2 Peter 3, he, he's, he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's waiting for more people to get saved. Very patient God. Kind of had to teach this to Jonah. Jonah said, Lord, I'm hoping you'll destroy these people. They're wicked. God's very gracious, very merciful. You know, I always think of David when he says, God, let me fall into your hands and not into the hands of man. God is much more gracious than any person will ever be. He's patient. But the prophet here is perplexed. He can't understand why God seems to be ignoring rampant corruption all around him. And even amongst his own people at that, it just drags on and on. Well, the complaint of Habakkuk in 1, 2 through 4 could be summarized in this way. Yahweh, why do you continue to allow flagrant iniquity to go on among your people? Why are you allowing this to go on and on? Well, evidently, for some time, Habakkuk had been watching the deteriorating state of Judah and had been praying about it and asking the Lord to intervene. Turn the situation around. Kind of like maybe you're praying for revival. I think he was doing that. Praying that the Lord would work in this situation. But you know what? God hadn't answered. Did you catch that? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. It's like God's not answering. And the word cry here denotes a loud cry in the sense of a scream. It's the cry of a disturbed or a distressed person. I mean, this was intense prayer. And yet it was as if God didn't hear. In, in, in this context, means he didn't respond. God's lack of response comes off as indifference. And that perplexed the prophet. He points out that he has been crying out about what? The violence. The violence in the land. It was ugly. It needed God's intervention. And it was unchecked, as it were, and out of control. How long would it be before God answered prayer? Notice he's relying on God to answer prayer here. God, we need you to intervene. We need you to do something. It's a desperate situation. How long is the question? And that's followed up then by the why question. Verse 3. Why do you show me iniquity? And cause me to see trouble. 
For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Did you catch it? Very personal concern here, right? Personal questions. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? Plundering and violence are before me. Said Habakkuk, you got some real personal concerns here. He does. Perhaps he could understand uh, if these things were happening in relationship to just other people who were wicked, but he's a godly man. Why is he, as a man of God, having to suffer these things? That's a good question. Why do the righteous suffer? Um, why do the righteous have to go through all of this trauma? Couldn't God just set the wicked over here in their own little quarters and deal with them? We're over here in our good quarters. <laughs> no, it doesn't work that way. Habakkuk is tired of having to deal with sin on every hand all the time. Why is God putting him through this? And maybe you feel this way from time to time. It's a common experience for God's people. We weary of sin. We look forward to the day when there'll be no more sin, either ours or anyone else's. And, and certainly as we are saturated by sin all around us on every hand, we often wonder why, how long. Why, when we are very serious about God, do we have to go through this and experience this trauma? Uh, notice, uh, he says, why do you show me iniquity? Iniquity uh, in the Old Testament relates more to the depraved nature or to the character of wickedness rather than to actual action. It's the idea of the, the rot of moral perverseness behind the action. So it's really the idea of moral crookedness or perverseness. That's the idea of iniquity. Uh, he says, uh, why do you cause me to see trouble? Trouble is the idea of, of painful misery or grief. And plundering, plundering and violence are before me. Plundering is sometimes translated as destruction, which denotes des uh, destruction or desolation of property, while violence uh, denotes injurious conduct that harms people. So destruction and oppression were everywhere. This was not a pretty context. There was no security for person or property. Talk about locking your doors. I'm sure they did. Everywhere Habakkuk looked, the people were being devastated and hurt. Wickedness was abounding on every hand. It was ugly. He says, strife and contention arises. People are fighting everywhere. Animosity, infighting, civil strife defined the land of Judah. Not a pleasant experience. And where's God? Where's God in all of this? You know, the personal God of Israel that interacts with his people, that holds them accountable, that judges sin. Where is he? Where was answered prayer? Why didn't God do something? We believe he answers prayer, right? Habakkuk believed that. This is a perplexing question for the prophet. Some time ago, it was reported that the number one Google question in America is, who created God? The second is, why does God allow suffering? I mean, if God is all powerful and all good, as we say he is, how can he allow suffering? 
And Habakkuk really uh, brings forth another question. Okay, why does God allow it to continue? Uh, in theology, this is called the problem of theodicy. Uh, namely, why does a good God allow evil? And the reasoning goes like this. If God is morally perfect, then why doesn't he do something about evil? I know, I know he has. I know, we know the, the, other, the whole orb theology here. But this, just listen to the argument. If God is morally perfect, then why doesn't he do something about evil? As is perceived by the world that he's not. And uh, if God is all-powerful, then why doesn't he do something about suffering? People often wrestle with God's goodness and the problem of evil and, and suffering. And people who don't have a personal faith in the God of the Bible end up saying things like this. Either God is all-powerful and not all-good, or he may be all-good, but he's not all-powerful. Or perhaps they argue, as many want to do today, he doesn't even exist at all. The problem of evil is consistently a top reason why many people claim they are unbelievers. This, this suffering, just mindless suffering, as they see. It doesn't make sense, this good God you guys talk about from the Bible. They have a problem. But note, even God's people sometimes <clears throat> have honest struggles. <clears throat> and they need a drink of water. <laughs> sometimes even God's people have honest struggles in this area. Habakkuk did. Job wondered why. I mean, you got a lot of chapters. Job's struggling with this. Why? Why is this happening to me? The psalmist often asks, why? It's not a new question. Why? Why is this happening? Like uh, Dwayne Holmes used to say to me, he says, you know, the real question is that we need to ask ourselves is, why does anything good ever happen to me? <laughs> we kind of look at it the wrong way. Instead of why are bad things happening, why does anything good ever happen? Well, Still, it was a perplexing question. And he says, verse 4, Therefore the law is powerless, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Not a pretty picture. Here was the prevailing societal condition in Judah. The law was powerless, meaning it carried no weight or power with the people. It was ineffectual in their lives. Uh, the law is powerless. The word law is the Hebrew word Torah, meaning instruction. And it referred to the divinely revealed standard to govern the covenant life of Israel. Uh, Torah sometimes specifically referred to the first five books of the Bible uh, known as the law of Moses. Sometimes it was more widely applied uh, to the whole of the Old Testament revelation. But uh, this from the Evangelical Bible Commentary, Judah's law ultimately resided in the revealed teaching of God whose standards were to permeate every area of the believer's life. Well, that was not happening. When it says the law is powerless, the idea of powerless more literally means numb. It's the idea of paralyzed. The word no longer had any impact on the people. They were a lawless society in which God's word had virtually no effect on them. You see, they paid no regard to the law, kind of like much of our society today. 
Uh, you know, it's interesting. We, we know the verse, right? Hebrews 4.12. You've memorized Hebrews 4.12. Uh, the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, etc., etc. The word is powerful. Not to these people. Not to these people. It was like paralyzed in their lives. It wasn't active in their lives. They weren't, they weren't lining up with the word. They weren't trembling at the word. They weren't paying attention to the word. The law is powerless, he says. Seriously? It's not my word like a fire, saith the Lord, like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces. Well, this makes for a very difficult and unpleasant experience for the people of God when you have a society that's unresponsive to the word. And by the way, that's the context of apostasy, where people just no longer really respond to the word. Noah preached and preached. 120 years, he's hammering out there. He's preaching. Nobody's responding. As it was in the days of Noah. Not going to be a great response. The word's gone out. And there's still people getting saved. Don't get me wrong. But a lot of apostasy. People have heard it. They don't want to hear it anymore. This is why Paul referred to the last days as quote unquote perilous times. Perilous times in 2 Timothy 3.1. They are perilous, that is, dangerous times because of rank apostasy. They define the times. You see, it says there, after people, they're living very wickedly, they, but they still have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. They deny the power of the word in their lives. It doesn't apply as far as affecting them. Yeah, they're going through the motions, but they don't live according to the word. Well, what are the consequences to lawlessness? Well, read on. He says, justice never goes forth. Justice does not prevail. The law of the land rooted in God's law in this context, in Judah, was no longer enforced. Wrongdoers are not brought to justice. The wrong prevails, not justice. Crookedness rules as the uncontested victor. How depressing is that? How oppressive. And this is how Habakkuk felt. I mean, wickedness is just having its sway all over the place. And so he said, for the wicked surround the righteous. They've got us surrounded, guys. I mean, we can't even escape from this. they got us surrounded. By the way, Here's a bright note in a sort of offhanded way. Note the righteous are still represented. He didn't say there are no righteous. There was still some there. They're surrounded by the wicked, but they're still there. That's, that's the bright note. They're still there. Uh, God always has a remnant. It's wonderful to know that God always has a remnant. You know, Christ didn't say, well, you know, I'm going to default on my church in the last days. It's going to be wicked, and we're just not going to quite see it through. It'll, it'll get close, but we won't quite bring it home. No, no, no. He will build his church. He will complete his church. There is going to be a godly remnant, just like there was in the days of Noah. They're still represented. Remember Elijah. Remember Elijah. I love Elijah. That fiery prophet in the Old Testament. I mean, you guys, call on your God. You, you need to do more. Maybe your God's sitting on a toilet or something. You know, he holler louder. <laughs> Love a little bit of that prophetic sarcasm. 
And then he calls on God, the God Yahweh, and God sends fire down out of heaven, devours the whole offering and everything. And, you know, the people said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Wow, that, that happened under the prophet Elijah. But you know, as you go along, the days were, were dark days of apostasy in the days of Elijah. And he got really down. And he said to God, I alone am left. It's me. It's me. But then God told him that there were yet 7,000 who had not yet bowed the knee to Baal. And then Paul goes on as he's recounting the story in Romans 11.5 to make this application. Even so, even so then at this present time there is a remnant according to the election of grace. There's still a remnant. There was a remnant back in the Old Testament. There's still a remnant today. God always has a remnant. So note that. The wicked surround the righteous. Yeah, they do. But we still got the righteous there. They're not going anywhere. There's always going to be a remnant. And I think that remnant might grow pretty small in the last days, which means, which is why we are not to forsake the assembly and so much more as we see the day approaching. We need each other in this wicked context. But the people of God can never be completely extinguished. But it's not always easy. It's not always easy for the righteous. In fact, most of the time, it's very hard. Times of apostasy often find the wicked surrounding the righteous. You see, Satan is the God of this age. God is always sovereign, always. But Satan is still the God of this age, and he has the whole world under his sway. And that doesn't make it easy for the people of God. It's like the wicked got us hemmed in. The righteous find themselves surrounded on every side. This is kind of a perilous position. New Bible commentary says the wicked surround the righteous as an enemy with a view to causing his ruin. And indeed, they do want to bring us down. Wycliffe Bible commentary says this. The godly found themselves hopelessly outnumbered and overpowered, so that their testimony was of little use. Surely God could not long endure such things among his people. God's certainly going to come and and rescue us soon. Remember how David would cry out and say, well, I'm in a perilous situation. God, if you don't come, I'm I'm in trouble. Waiting on God. Surely God will come. And so what is the conclusion of the matter? Habakkuk says in verse 4, Therefore, perverse judgment proceeds. The word perverse here means to bend or twist out of shape. With the wicked in power, justice was twisted to where it was injustice. And no one seemed to care except for the oppressed. The righteous oppressed. Nobody else really seemed to care. This reminds me of what the psalmist said. Psalm 11, verse 3, if the foundations are those pillars of society, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? That's how Habakkuk felt. It might be how some of us are feeling these days. You know, the United States used to be called a Christian nation. I don't know that it really was a technically, what do you call it, a Christian nation. But it is true that the influence of the Judeo-Christian ethic was a moral underpinning of our entire society. 
But now everybody pretty much agrees. I don't know if there's any disagreement anywhere. We now clearly live in a post-Christian era with the Supreme Court taking the lead on murder being legalized in the form of abortion, taking the lead on legalizing same-sex marriages. These are the laws of the land today. Wickedness, great wickedness from the top echelon of our government right on through. Wicked country we live in. Don't talk about this being a Christian country. It's not. You might say, well, maybe we used to be. Yeah, well, maybe we need some qualifiers too. Moral relativism permeates the culture. The family is being torn apart. The nuclear family, the biblical family. Flagrant immorality. Marriage has been redefined. What is marriage? I'm telling you, you go out here in society, you start saying, well, this is what marriage is. The Bible says, see how, see how it works for you. You think the world's going to, they won't even give you a golf clap. Uh, I mean, they're not going to appreciate this. You hate her. You hate people. That's why you take a stand like that. That's very unloving. Hate speech. Probably put me in jail for things like this. <laughs> Eventually. It's okay. You'll come visit, right? At least right. Once in a while. Anyway, uh, marriage has been redefined. You know, it's so perverse. Even the word gender is being redefined. How many genders are there? Do you know? I'm just asking for a friend. (laughs) Thank you. That's, That's old school. Not anymore. There's many genders. I'm not sure how many. Anyway, yeah, there's two. It's being redefined. Everything's being redefined. We're not going by the book anymore. Evolution is how everything started. You understand that non-life uh, can bring forth life, right? I mean, it's a scientific fact. Not. Uh, how, where did things come from? Creationism, the God of the Bible. We only got two options: evolution. Everything you know came from nothing, or or. Material is eternal somehow versus the God of the Bible. And on and on. There is abuse on many levels. And God's people may be wondering, where's God? Where's God? I mean, how long is this going to go on? How far is it going to go? Sometime there ago there arose some that claimed that God was now dead. He was now dead. And what they meant by that is he didn't really exist to start with. And the reason they took this position that God is dead, is, and they were so sure of themselves, is because they claimed there was no evidence of God intervening or interfering in the affairs of mankind. Where is he? And it's kind of like 2 Peter says, mockers. Since the beginning, uh, everything continues as it was. There's no evidence of God's intervention anywhere, right? If there's a God, where is he? That's a common mistake. People often mistake the silence of God for his absence or non-existence. Or if they do believe in God, they might think it reflects bad on his character as he is seen as MIA, missing in action. Where is he? But I would remind us that the Bible teaches that God is a patient God. As I say, he puts up with sin far longer than we would. 
I always like this quote by Martin Luther. I don't like Martin Luther's baptismal regeneration. I always say that whenever I quote Luther, but I always say he's quotable too. said a lot of quotable things, including this one. He says, uh, if I were as our Lord God and committed the government to my son as he to his son, and these vile people were as disobedient as they now be, I would knock the world in pieces. I kind of sometimes feel that way. We often find ourselves just frustrated, perplexed, and say, what do we say? Even so, come Lord Jesus. We're looking forward to that time. Well, he will come in due season, and what's he going to do? Well, let's flash ahead here. Psalm 2, 8 and 9, ask of me, of course, the Messiah and God the Father having conversation. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, God the Father says to the Messiah, as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Oh, yeah, it's coming. He will indeed smash the world to pieces, meaning he will crush societal rebellion. But for now, we still live in, are you ready for this? The age of grace. The age where where God is restraining overt, direct judgment on the whole world that we find will happen in the day of the Lord. God's giving space. For a time, he is the God who hides himself in that sense. What is the time factor? Well, he sets the calendar. I don't know. In Genesis 15, he said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them there for 400 years. 400 years. Uh, Looking forward here. And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age, but in the fourth generation they shall return here. Why? Why the time frame here? Well, God says, for the iniquity of the Amorites, the perverseness of the Amorites is not yet complete. Isn't that interesting how he says that? God's people were in the land for hundreds of years before God finally brought judgment on them, evicting them from the land. It's as if the cup of the Lord's wrath is being filled up. And when it's full, it will then be poured out. Where are we in that cup as far as the world? We don't know. God's in charge of the calendar. We know it's coming. When exactly? We don't know. Well, one of the lessons in Habakkuk is that God is sovereign over the how long and the why. Spirios Zodiite says, The inquiries that Habakkuk made of God have been echoed by many of God's children down through the ages. The answers he received conclusively, conclusively affirm that God is not accountable to any man. Indeed, we will see this developed as we go along in our study. God is God, and he is sovereignly in charge. And you know what he asks of us? Not that we figure it all out. He asks that we trust him. The just shall live by faith. In the context of great apostasy, which is why I chose this book for this time in history. That's where we are. We live in days of great apostasy. We're streaming down the path, ready to run into judgment at some point. 
It's challenging for us as believers. We may have intellectual and emotional struggles, but our faith always comes back to the fact that God is God. His ways are not our ways. They're always above our ways, and they're always infinitely better. We need to trust him. That's what he asks us to do. Trust him. Trust him. I always like this, uh, you know, this piece from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Uh, Just a couple of lines from there. In despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. That's true. That's true. It's just a matter of time. Till the wrong shall fail, and the right prevail. But in the meantime, in the meantime, we might ask, but how long? How long? Or why? And the response comes back to us, the just shall live by faith. Trust God. Trust God. That's all he asks of us. The just shall indeed live by faith. Let's have our concluding song, and then I'll close this in prayer.